First Peter chapter number four is the passage of scripture we're going to consider. Uh, this is part two of this morning's message. If you weren't here in the auditorium this morning, uh, we were focusing on anticipating heaven. We have had a very strange year in America, and this week, this past week, has topped the uh, charts as far as a uh, a strange week in America. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of dismay, and a lot of uncertainty in America. And it's a good time to kind of take a step back and anticipate heaven. So this morning in the uh, message, we looked at some uh, passages about the topic of heaven and tried to visualize what heaven is going to be like. And we have a great future ahead of us. Regardless what happens now around us, we have an amazing future out there in front of us. And this evening, I want us to consider heaven from a different perspective. I want us to consider, in light of heaven, what do we need to do now? In light of the amazing heaven that's in front of us, and our expectation of the soon coming of Jesus Christ, what is it that we should be occupied with now? Somebody here in the church forwarded to me something they read on Facebook this week. It was a post that a mom put on Facebook. It is a post that I would imagine having read it. It is the result of a lot of anxiety about raising children in today's America and wondering what it's going to be like to raise children in tomorrow's America. And this mom posted this. This, I believe, this past week. Don't feel sorry for or fear for your kids because the world they are growing up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for the exact moment in time that they're in. Their life wasn't a consequence or an accident. Raise them up to know the power they walk in as children of God, train them up in the authority of his word, teach them to walk in faith, knowing that God is in control, empower them to know that they can change the world. Don't teach them to be fearful and disheartened by the state of the world, but hopeful that they can do something about it. Every person in all of history has been placed in the time that they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lion's den. He knew David could handle Goliath. He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew Peter could handle persecution. And he knows that your child can handle whatever challenge they face in their life if they trust in God. He created them specifically for it. Don't be scared for your children. But be honored that God chose you to parent the generation that is facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Rise up to the challenge. Raise Daniels, Davids, Esthers, and Peters. God isn't scratching his head wondering what he's going to do with the mess of a world. He has an army he's raising up to drive back the darkness and make him known over all the earth. Don't let your fear steal the greatness God has placed in them. I know it's hard to imagine them as anything besides our sweet little babies. 
And we just want to protect them from anything that could ever be hard on them. But they were born for such a time as this. Hmm. Wise words from a mom with her head screwed on right. God placed us here knowing what it was going to be like. He's got a plan and purpose for each and every one of us. We're here for a reason. No need for fear. We've got a great future ahead of us. No, near, no need to be paralyzed because we know that the end result is going to be amazing. But we do need to keep our heads screwed on right and know that God has this thing and focus on what we should do in light of the day in which we live. Or how should we live in these days? You know, the Bible addresses that. It addresses it in Titus, one of my favorite passages in the Word of God. It talks about the coming of Jesus Christ and how the, the zeal for the coming of Christ impacts the way we live here and now. But I think probably the, the most powerful passage of Scripture about this topic is found in 1 Peter. You know, you can be helped a lot by being a student of the Word of God. Unfortunately, we live at a time where the Bible is probably still the best seller, but it's not always the best read and studied, even amongst the Christian population. One thing I learned many years ago, because I was thrust into the position of teaching and preaching uh, four times a week, plus college work, sometimes six, seven, eight times a week, is the, the necessity of studying and knowing why God gave us every part of His Bible. And my, what, a, what a, a, a blessing it is to know where to go in your Bible when you're facing something. And First Peter was written to Christians, to the dispersed Jewish people and, and Gentiles as well, dispersed across the world under persecution. They were living in persecution. They were fearing for their lives, having to leave and run. They were in a difficult time. And so Peter writes this letter to instruct them how to live in light of the world around you, the politics, the culture, the anti-God sentiment, how to live. And so 1 Peter is a powerful portion of Scripture, both First and Second Peter, powerful portions of Scripture to read and give some serious uh, thought. First uh, Peter contains good news for bad times. Good news for bad times. It was a joy to teach First Peter in college. It was a joy to preach through First Peter to you and be a part of some BSF classes that have studied First Peter. It's a phenomenal portion of Scripture. And we're jumping into chapter number four of First Peter, and I'm really focused and concerned and interested in verses seven to eleven, but primarily uh, verses ten and eleven. But just a little bit of context. Peter is uh, finished talking about the unsaved who speak evil about godly Christians and the fact that they would give an account to Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead for their deeds. And with that thought of God's judgment still lingering in the air, Peter encourages suffering Christians that the end is near. Look at verse number seven. But the end of all things is at hand. Realize that. That the end is near. And so, how should we live in light of the end being near? Well, he begins to talk to the believers that he was writing to about how to live in light of eternity. 
Wake up and live in light of eternity. Now, you see on your little worksheet there, there's a one, two, and a three. And uh, one and two don't have any blanks in them because I'm not preaching through verses seven through nine. But I want you to be aware of the whole picture. And then I want to focus on just verse 10 and 11 in the moments we have together this evening. Three actions that God uh, requires of us living in times of difficulty, challenging times. Number one, verse number seven says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Number one action is pray. Develop a prayer life. Be a prayer warrior. Be the kind of person that that prayer is, is a powerful part of your life. Be the kind of person that knows how to pray and practices prayer. Is involved in prayer personally and, and uh, corporately in church, uh, in, in church prayer meetings and church prayer groups. We need to know how to pray. We need to practice prayer. That's the first thing out of Peter's mouth under the inspiration of God. The end is at hand. Persecutors are, are bringing uh, havoc into your lives. Therefore, pray. Number one action is prayer. Oh, there's been so much written about prayer over the years. But let me just note what our text tells us about prayer. Be therefore sober and watch. Prayer is saturated in sobriety and watchfulness. What does that teach us? Sober speaks of being in control of your mind. It's being sober. It's being sensible. It's being clear-minded. Be a clear-minded, sensible person in your prayer life. Think about Know your world. Know what's going on. Be aware. Be sensible. Don't pray cliches. God bless all the missionaries. God save all the unsaved. You know, he's not going to save all the unsaved. God heal all the sick. He's not going to heal all the sick. He has purposes in some of those sicknesses. Cliches. General blanket prayers that are meaningless, accomplish nothing, and mean nothing. Be sensible in your prayer life. Be be sober, be aware, be thoughtful, and make prayer. Grow in prayer where it is a dynamic part of life that accomplishes something. Be sober and watch unto prayer. Watch unto prayer. Again, alertness, the, the, the watch. You think of the, the century on duty at the third watch of the night. He's aware, he's uh, observing the, the area around the encampment. He's watching Keeping his eyes open, knowing what's going on. Our prayer lives are to be the prayers of mature-minded people who see the world around them in a proper perspective and see things from a biblical worldview in light of eternity, who think deeply about the realities of life. You know, those who are full of frivolous, all fun and games tend to often not be strong prayer warriors, strong prayer Warriors require that they be much aware of the challenges of our day. And they're watchful of what's happening by the persecutors. And they are sober-minded as they seek God in prayer. When one thinks deeply about heaven and hell and about the needs of people who need to come to Christ and understand the, the battle, the satanic battle over the, um, the things of God that occurs all around us, that... that pushes us toward a sobriety of thought, a maturity of thought, whereby prayer will become something that is 
sober-minded and, uh, and watchful. So the first action is we need to pray. And the second action is that we need to love. Verse number 8 says, and, here's a second action, not only prayer, but and above all things or upon all things. It's the picture, the word picture of dressing in layers upon all things or above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. The Bible talks about love as being that overcoat that, that saturates every part of our character, every part of our being. And the Bible here says that above all things, encompassing all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Here's an instruction that love is to be an important part of our character in difficult, challenging times. In difficult, challenging times, we need to think of one another, not just think of ourselves. And so we're to have a fervent charity. Of course, charity is, is, emphasizes the action behind love. Love can be looked at as a, an emotion, I feel, but charity is the action that is prompted by the emotion. Charity is what I do because of the emotion of compassion or love or concern. And so the emphasis here is a fervent charity, action for one another. Now, what is this, what is this all about? Well, he says it's preeminent. He says, above all things. In Colossians 3, and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the glue. It's the bond. It holds it all together. Practical acts that flow out of an emotional heart for people is the bond that glues our Christian character together. It is the overcoat that is on top of everything else. The decision to... Make love a front burner item. It's preeminent. It's above all things. It's powerful, fervent, fervent love. Red hot, fervent, intense strain, energetic, powerful, active. Love is to be powerful. It's to be profitable. Charity shall cover the multitude of sins. When people do you wrong, you can, you can cover over that sin so no one will ever find out about it. You don't have to tell everybody about it. You can cover it up. You know how you cover it up? With fervent love for that person. Go buy them a gift. Go do something nice for them. Make sure nobody finds out about what they did to you. That's what he's talking about. It is a profitable uh, action. This, this charity that uh, covers sin and uh, is so powerful in our lives. And then it's practiced. It, use hospitality one to another. Uh, this, this love is a practiced love where it shows itself in our actions one toward another. Hospitality, by the way, is the love of strangers. That's what the word literally means, the love of strangers, the willingness to do kindness to people that you don't even know, to be hospitable to people that you're not, you're not paying them back for something they did for you. You're not taking them out to dinner because they took you out for dinner. It, it's, hospitality is when you do things for strangers that, that would have no expectation or reason to expect that you would do something nice for them. Hospitality, love for strangers. This is the practiced love of the Christian life. So much in the Bible about these things, about praying and love. And I want you to focus for our last few minutes on the third action. The third action in verse number, 11, verse number 10 as 
every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. What is this third action? The word minister, of course, means to serve. And so he's talking about serving. We need to, in light of this last week in America, we need to pray like we've never prayed before. We need to love like we've never loved before. And we need to serve like we've never served before. These are the three actions. They're not dependent on a stable culture. They're not dependent on a stable political environment. They're not dependent on everything being easy. But they are the three actions that God requires of His children in light of a persecuted world prior to our entrance into heaven. We need to pray. We need to love. We need to serve. What is this serving? He says, as everyone has received the gift. He's talking here about the Holy Spirit that gifts us to be able to serve. Or we sometimes call it the teaching of the Bible about spiritual gifts. Now, you see on your little worksheet, there are four classic passages where God teaches about spiritual gifts. You'll notice if you look at the blanks, after the blank of each is either a four or a twelve. There are two fours and two twelves. little memory tool to help you remember. Where in the Bible do you go to learn about spiritual gifts? You've got four places to go. Two are chapters four, and two are chapters twelve. Now, let me give you a hint. One of the fours is First Peter 4. <laughs> that's, that's opened on your lap. But you tell me what the other ones are. Where do you go in the Bible to study spiritual gifts? First Corinthians is one of the twelves. Okay, we got First Peter 4. We got First Corinthians 12. Now, we got another four and another twelve. Where do you go? Ephesians 4 is the 4. We've got one more. It's a 12. No. Good guess, but not Hebrews. Yes. Romans. It's Romans. So we've got, we've got four places to go to. Now, you'll notice when you look at that, that, that group of four, that three of them were God used the Apostle Paul to pen those three books. And only one of them was penned by someone who wasn't the Apostle Paul. And that's where we are today in First Peter. So we have Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12 written by the Apostle Paul. Now, in each of those books and chapters, the teaching on spiritual gifts is illustrated. Peter did not use this illustration. But Paul used this illustration whenever he was talking about spiritual gifts. Can anybody tell me what is the illustration I'm talking about? A body. Every time the Apostle Paul dealt with spiritual gifts, he illustrated the church in which that person is a member as a body. And the person who is a member is as a body part. And so you've got a church which is a body. Now, this has been clouded somewhat by Catholic and Protestant theology that made the body some kind of a universal, invisible group of all saved people. Uh, something that we don't find in the Bible. When the Bible wants to talk about all saved people, the Bible uses the term family, family of God. We get into the family of God by getting saved. 
And once we're saved, we're a part of God's family. We're born into God's family by the new birth when we're saved. But the body is a church. Every church is a body. There are thousands of bodies of Christ all over the world. Every church is a body. It's not the entity that it is a body. It's that it is a church that acts like a body. Body is merely an illustration of the function of a church. That is how Baptists have understood the teaching of the body of Christ throughout time. Uh, before interdenominationalism and Protestantism made it a salvation relationship because of coming out of Catholicism. So there's some things that we learn about that because of that. And you see the blanks on the top of the back of your little worksheet. What does that mean that the church acts like a body? And you've got five uh, little bullet points there. Here's, here they are. The CBC as a church operates like a body. CBC operates like a body. That's the, the, the body is the illustration of how we function. Second bullet point, Jesus is the head. This illustrates who's in charge. Jesus Christ is the head of the body. Third little bullet point, every member is a body part. We've got hands, feet, ears, eyes, nose. We've got all kinds of body parts sitting in this room tonight. Every member is a part of the body. And the fourth little bullet point, the body functions best when every body part is present, healthy, and actively participates in what the head tells the body to do. The head, Jesus, tells the body what he wants the body to accomplish. And then that body is in its best form when every body part is present, healthy, and functioning. You can think of it in terms of a body in which one body part says, you know, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And if the liver says that to your body and says, you know, I'm out of here. I'm not going to do that anymore. Then that impacts the entire body. It impacts its health, its ability to function, its ability to carry out the work of the head. Every body part is important. Every body part is, is, is uh, different. And, and every body part does a different thing, has different characteristics, accomplishes different things. And when the head tells the body what he wants the body to do, and every body part is healthy, present, and functioning, and active, then the body is in its greatest strength to accomplish what the head tells it to do. And the last little bullet point, the body is hindered when some members don't pull their share. And so the teaching of the spiritual gifts is a teaching of how the Holy Spirit makes each body part unique and how he equips and develops each body part for the particular function he wants that body part to do. Some body parts are really good at running, but they do a lousy job holding a glass of water and getting that water to the lips. Each body part is unique because the Holy Spirit gifts each body part uniquely so that working together as a body, we can accomplish the things that are uh, beneficial to God. Now, there are eight truths from our text. I want to just step down through quickly. Eight truths about spiritual gifts from our text here in First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four, verse 11 says, let every man, I'm sorry, verse 10, every let and as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. First bullet point, every Christian has giftedness, has at least one gift, has the ability to do things. God gifted you. God made you as a part of a body, just just like a part of a body. He made you 
to be able to do things that other parts of the body aren't, as, aren't so good at. But, but he made you, you, because he wanted you to be able to do something in the body that will further his work on earth. Every Christian has abilities, gifts, uniqueness in service for God. Number two, the exercise of gifts will be directed towards people. This is an important understanding of gifts. I don't exercise my gift for my benefit. The Bible says in verse number 10, as every man hath received the gift, the gift is the Holy Spirit who comes and shapes us and molds us and, and produces the fruit of the Spirit through our lives and enables us uh, as a church family to be able to fulfill the Great Commission. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. Someone with the gift of being able to sing beautifully, praise and worship to God and lead us in our heart devotion to God doesn't do that for themselves. And the moment they begin to do that for themselves, rather than for the people and God, then everything gets messed up. Pride enters in. The Spirit of God doesn't use it. Uh, and, and the gift is... Uh, isn't functioning appropriately. The exercise of gifts are always directed toward people. Every spiritual giftedness that God incorporates in a person is there for the purpose of enabling that person to serve other people. The exercise of the gifts will be directed toward people. Number three, the exercise of the gifts is a matter of stewardship. You'll notice this verse says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards. As good stewards. Now, a steward is, an, is a manager of something owned by someone else. And so when the Bible tells us that our giftedness is a stewardship, he tells us that we don't own that giftedness. He put that in us. He shaped us in that way. In order for us to serve other people, and it doesn't belong to us. It is a stewardship. And when we manage the giftedness God that has given to us, has built into us, we manage that for the benefit of other people as a good steward. Therefore, a steward is always responsible to the owner of the property he manages. And so when I, when I exercise my giftedness as a good steward, it shows the responsibility I have to the one who enabled me to have that gift, the one who gifted me in that way, the one who made me in that way. I'm responsible to him for his giftedness that he incorporated into my personality and abilities. And so as I serve other people in the realm in which I have been gifted, I am being a good steward to the one who owns that giftedness. It is a matter of stewardship. And then I want you to notice number four, the possession of gifts is undeserved. He says in verse number 10, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We know what grace is. Grace is something that we don't deserve. Grace is unmerited favor. Whenever the Bible calls something grace or uses the word grace to explain something, then we know that this is an area in which we do not deserve what is being talked about. The Bible talks about the grace of giving. Who am I to finance the kingdom work 
of the creator of the universe. I don't deserve the privilege of financing his worldwide kingdom work. And when he allows me to have the energy to earn money and he allows me to take that resource that is ultimately his and I manage by stewardship and I give that to finance the work of God's kingdom, I don't deserve the privilege of being allowed to do that. That's a grace, a grace of giving that God has given to me. Well, it's that way with stewardship. He speaks here of my abilities, my spiritual gifts as a grace of God, a matter of undeserved privilege. And so when if if I identify how God has shaped me and gifted me to be able to serve people, to extend the work of my creator in his world, I don't deserve that. That is a privilege. A privilege is totally undeserved. It all belongs to him. And I'm managing it for him. What a privilege that I should be able to serve people and extend the work of the Great Commission around the world through the spiritual giftedness he built in me. Then I want you to notice something else. Number five, gifts fall into two major categories. This is in, in the letters that the Apostle Paul was used by God to write. God sometimes gave lists of some gifts. He, he sometimes listed different kinds of things that were gifts present in those churches, the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus. And he spoke specifically of some specific gifts that were present in the membership of those churches. Here, in this passage, he just divides them categorically into two categories. We see that in verse number 11. If any man speak, if any man minister. And so he speaks of two categories of gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. There are gifts that involve the vocal cords and the mouth. And there are gifts that just involve the, the, uh, the action of life, the serving people. And so there are teachers, there's preachers, there's singers, there's ones who use their vocal cords and their mouth in the exercise of their gifts. And there's others who aren't necessarily gifted to do something like that, but God has equipped them and shaped them and enabled them to do things uniquely and, and, and muchly needed in the serving of other people, and they serve. Now, each of these categories have an important thing to consider. Verse number 11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's a phrase that speaks of the written revelation of God. In other words, if a person has a spiritual gift that involves their vocal cords in their mouth, they must make sure that they exercise that spiritual gift with the truth of the written revelation of God as the foundation for their ministry. If it's a teacher, they teach the Word of God. If it's a preacher, he preaches the Word of God. If it's someone who sings and provides music, they sing the truth of the Word of God. And so the Word of God is foundational in any gift that involves the vocal cords and the mouth. But then he says the serving gifts. He said, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. So the one who serves, serves with the energy, the ability, the enablement that God has built in them. And so we have two major gifts. The exercise of those gifts both depend upon God. 
Speaking gifts depend upon the revelation of God. Serving gifts depend upon the ability of God. Number seven, the exercise of gifts glorifies God. This is amazing. Verse number 11 says, if any man speak, if any man minister, that God in all things may be glorified. You know, at the end of the day, when you exercise your spiritual giftedness for God and serve God either in a speaking or a serving uh, capacity, the end of the, of the whole process is that God is glorified. You can glorify God. Think about that. You can bring glory to God. You can cause God to be looked at differently because of how you lived with his enablement, with his word, with his uh, with the spirit of God's development in your life. When you serve other people through the spiritual giftedness that you have, you affect the way other people who observe or receive your ministry, how they view God. When they see that God has enabled and used you to bless their lives, they glorify and are grateful to God for putting you in their lives. You glorify God when you exercise your spiritual gifts. And then number eight, Jesus Christ is the key to God receiving glory. Because verse number 11 says that God in all things may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's a couple of little thoughts right there at the very end. Your gift includes an A and an R. Your gift includes ability. We know that from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Your gift includes it. But no one can say, well, I'm not able. I'm not capable. What you're saying is God is deficient in being able to use me to serve him. And other people. That is a slam in the face of God. You have the ability. God has gifted you. God has put the Holy Spirit to live inside of your body. God has molded you and developed you and made you who you are with the gifts and abilities and strengths that you have. You are capable. To think otherwise is a... Is a, uh, is a uh, A negative comment about God. And the second thing, the R, is responsibility. Verse 10 shows us that we have a responsibility. It's a stewardship. I have a responsibility to God. Someone who does not serve has failed their responsibility to the one who equipped them for the goal of making their church strong. In ministering to people and extending the work of the Great Commission. So this is, this, is, uh, this is the spiritual giftedness teaching in the Bible from one of the four passages. Now, why did I bring this? I bring this because I think it's important for us as a church family in this, uh, in this uh, time in American history, this time in our experience as a church family, where we've lost so much of the workforce of Community Baptist Church. We've lost so many workers. For whatever reasons, they're just not here anymore. Or they're not willing to serve anymore. 
And so I thought we need to go back and we need to reestablish some foundational principles. They say, well, why on a Sunday night? We're all working. Yeah, I realize that. But I just felt impressed to turn our attention tonight to this subject. And I'll probably preach a couple of Sunday mornings on it as well from other passages. There's three other passages that deal with spiritual gifts. But I, I, I wanted to, to solicit your help in praying for your church. In order for us to accomplish the work that God would want to accomplish through us in Northern Virginia in 2021, we need a church that's, that's humming along with all eight cylinders pumping out energy. We need a church in which the, the membership of the church is healthy, active, involved, enabling their church to accomplish the Great Commission in 2021. So I wanted to, to solicit your prayers for the church family. Praying for God to work in our lives to help us all grow and to bring in, you know, the Bible says in one of the passages that deals with spiritual gifts in First Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible says God places in the body such as please him. He brings into the church the people that he needs in that church to be able to accomplish the work he wants that church to do. And so we need to pray that God will bring people to Community Baptist Church that will help us be stronger. We need people that are serving God. And, and that means helping people that are here to, to own the doctrine of spiritual giftedness and to live that in their lives. And we need for God to bring people who can help us to be stronger in accomplishing that work. There's a book entitled Amazing Grace, 366 Inspiring Hymn Stories for Daily Devotions. Their October 5th reading is on a hymn called Channels Only. Ever heard that hymn? How many know the hymn? Channels Only. I see a number of hands around the room. Let me read to you a little, just a little bit of, of this as we close. To be a channel of the purposes of God is the highest calling in life. You understand what he's talking about is being a channel of of God's ministry to other people. That's what spiritual giftedness is all about. I am a channel for God to work in the lives of other people. And to be a channel of the purposes of God is the highest calling in life. Every believer has been given at least one spiritual gift for this work. And when we use that gift, our own lives are blessed and enriched by God as we bless others. For instance, after a visit to a nursing home or an invalid person, we often come away spiritually rejuvenated. Ministering to the needs of others is one of the best remedies for self-centeredness and joyless living. Our ministry to others, however, is always based on what we have first received and experienced from God. We can never give out spiritual nourishment until we have first taken in spiritual nourishment. Our experiences of suffering can be used to equip us to help others who suffer as we do. Difficulties can either make us bitter or they can fill us with compassion and sensitivity for the hurts of others. People who are hurting can sense when we really understand and care for them in Christian love. Our Lord is seeking representatives who realize their insufficiencies but are willing to be a channel filled with His power and love. 
That's the vessel he can use. Look at these words. I mean, the theology in this song, Channels Only, is powerful. How I praise thee, precious Savior, that thy love laid hold of me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power, flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Verse number two. And let's just go through the verses and then we'll do the course again at the very end. Here's verse two. Just a channel full of blessing to the thirsty hearts around to tell out thy full salvation, all thy loving message sound. Emptied that thou shouldest fill me, a clean vessel in thy hand, with no power but as thou givest, graciously with each command, witnessing thy power to save me, setting free from self and sin, thou who bought me to possess me, in thy fullness, Lord, come in. Jesus Fill now with thy spirit hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner man may flow. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. A church is like a body. It's strong. When all the members of the body are healthy, present, and active, that's when the body can do what the head tells it to do. Let's pray that God will strengthen His body here in Northern Virginia this year. That we might experience a strengthening of our church. We're not dependent that Strong church is not dependent on the absence of political turmoil or the absence of persecution. This teaching was given by God to a persecuted church to challenge them to pray, to love, and to serve. God help us in 2021 to go through a time of being strengthened to accomplish what God wants us to do this year.